Casting through Ancient Greece is an Amazon Associate member. As an Amazon Associate, I earn from qualifying purchases. What this has allowed me to do is recommend books to you guys that are relevant to the episode I am presenting. The books I'll be recommending I have read myself and have made use of during writing the series. If you are interested in purchasing what I've recommended, using the link of the book on the episode page on my website will help support the series with providing me a small commission. For this episode, I'm going to recommend the landmark Herodotus, The Histories, edited by Robert B. Strasler. This edition of The Histories is very user-friendly, with footnotes where you want them, summaries of the paragraphs in the margins for quick references, and maps never far from where you are reading. This edition has been one of my go-tos while writing on the Greek and Persian Wars. If you head to the episode page for episode 36, Herodotus, the Father of History, on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website, you can find the link for the landmark Herodotus. Additionally, if you would like to become a member of Audible, the largest collection of audiobooks on the internet, you can click on the Audible banner on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website to gain a 30-day trial membership, where you also find a number of the books I'll be recommending. Herodotus of Halicarnassus here presents his research so that human events do not fade with time. May the great and wonderful deeds, some brought forth by Hellenes and others by the barbarians, not go unsung, as well as the causes that led them to make war on each other. From Herodotus's Histories. Hello, I'm Mark Selick and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 36, Herodotus, the Father of History. The lines that open this episode would be the opening paragraph or lines spoken in Herodotus's times in a work that is currently one of the oldest surviving works of history in the Western world. What would set this account of the past apart from those that had preceded it was the fact that it was not simply recounting events, it was interested in trying to understand those events as well. It would be an investigation or an inquiry into events of the past, resulting in what the Greeks termed a historiae, a learning or knowledge by inquiry hence where we now get our word history. This would be quite different to the poems, texts and inscriptions of the past that had simply laid out events, stories or proclamations that were to be accepted. Questions were now being asked about the past and these inquiries would see that questions would continue to be asked in the future. In our look at Herodotus, we are going to spend a couple of episodes looking at him and his work, the histories. As you should be well aware of now, he was our main primary source for the Greek and Persian wars, as this was his primary focus and was at the core of his goal for writing his work, the causes that led to them to make war on each other. We're now going to attempt to understand the man behind the influential work and why and how he presented this work. We'll begin by looking at the man himself, who Herodotus was. Having some context of the man will go a long way into understanding why he presents certain aspects as he did. His work becomes so much more richer when it can be placed in the context of his own times. Ignoring this can lead to some pretty basic misconceptions about his value as a historian. We need to remember a lot of advances in our understanding of the word history has changed quite a lot over the past 2,500 years. Herodotus is often cited as the father of history, but to think of him as being the first to have invented the concept of inquiring into the past would be a little irresponsible. Humans are curious by nature and would have been questioning events around them for millennia, though writing was a relatively new development outside of official documents. In Herodotus, we see the oldest surviving account of this process in action, 
though we can see where he may have drawn his inspiration from when embarking on his histories, which we'll also look at in more detail in this episode. In our modern times, we have an idea of what the study of history should be and how it should be presented. In Herodotus, we find elements of this. We also find much more that would not be considered history. We have had the benefit of time, some 2,500 years, for it to develop into a recognisable discipline with accepted conventions. Though these other elements, which we will look at, are what also add to the richness of the histories. So let's now try and get acquainted with Herodotus and his work. So, who was Herodotus? This is a question that is difficult to answer with great detail, as his writings do not focus on himself as a person, but what he learnt on his travels around the Mediterranean, and what he learnt from others. But we will try and draw out a profile of the man, and where this information comes from. Thanks to Herodotus himself, we are aware where he is from, since these are the opening words of his work, Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Halicarnassus was in Asia Minor, in the region of Caria, south of Ionia. Halicarnassus also began as a Greek colony, being founded by Dorians from the Greek mainland. Today, the ruins of Halicarnassus are located at the town of Bodrum, in western Turkey. This was also the site of one of the ancient wonders of the world, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus but this was built around 350 BC, some 70 years after Herodotus had died. For much of the rest of the information relating to Herodotus' background, we are at the mercy of the information that was compiled and presented in the Suda. We have referred to this lexicon in the series before. It was an encyclopedia of the ancient Mediterranean world, compiled in the Byzantine Empire from many ancient sources that are now lost to us today. It dates to the 10th century AD and has some 30,000 entries making up its contents. This is where much of the personal information comes from relating to Herodotus, though we are not certain of all of the sources and how reliable the information is. The Suda dates to nearly 1500 years after Herodotus. We are closer in time to the Suda than the times of Herodotus are to it. But it's still worth looking at since the information is taken from ancient sources, many of them lost to us today. What we find here in the Suda, many historians have found no reason to disbelieve for the most part and some of it seems to even fit in with what can be learnt of him through his own writing. So let's have a look at basically what the Suda tells us of Herodotus. We are told that Herodotus was part of the nobility within Halicarnassus. Born to parents, Lyxus and Diro. He also has a brother named Theodorus, and was either the cousin or nephew of Panassus, an epic poet from Halicarnassus ranked just behind Homer. We hear that his family were forced to flee to Samos, an island just north of Halicarnassus, this due to being on unfavourable terms with the current tyrant, Ligdemus, who was the grandson of Artemisia, who had been the first tyrant of Halicarnassus. We met Artemisia in our episodes around the Battle of Salamis. We also heard that he learnt the Ionian dialect on Samos, which is what the histories would be written in, remembering here Halicarnassus used the Doric dialect, since being founded by Dorians though there is evidence that they did use the Ionian dialect in official documents. Herodotus then returns to the Halicarnassus, where he assists in expelling the tyrant Ligdemus, though it would appear there were other political elements at play, as Herodotus would end up going into exile due to being disliked by the people of Halicarnassus. He would be part of the foundation of the Panhellenic colony led by the Athenians of Thurii in southern Italy. The Suda then ends with Herodotus either dying in Thurii or perhaps in Pella in Macedonia. Like I said, it is hard to match much of this against the hard evidence, but some elements have been linked to what has been written in his histories. 
either showing how later authors took inferences from what he'd said and how he presents things in the histories, or how these are presented reflect his lived past. John Marincola, in his introduction of the Penguin Classics edition of The Histories, points out that Herodotus, throughout his history, generally presents tyrants in a negative light. Also, Herodotus seems to have a very good knowledge of the island of Samos and its monuments, while also seeming to have favourable biases towards the Samians. But again, are these used to create a biography of him, or were they reflecting his past experiences? Okay, so this is what we can find in the Suda that gives some background to Herodotus. But what we potentially know of him doesn't end there. Much has also been drawn out of his histories to give us a picture of his life. On the point of when he was born, ancient tradition places this around the time of the Greek and Persian Wars, with a common date being given around 484 BC. Most modern historians haven't seen any reason to dispute this. It is then thought he died somewhere around the 420s BC, since his histories make reference to events early in the Peloponnesian War, beginning in 431. It is also assumed that the histories would have been his life's work, so much of his adult life devoted to travelling and compiling his research. We can also see in his accounts the evidence that he had travelled very widely around the Mediterranean, one would think not a common practice outside of being involved in the business of trade. He would have visited areas in Asia Minor, Phoenicia, Egypt and North Africa. It is also possible he may have gone to areas of the Black Sea, but this is a bit hard to say for certain and obviously he would have travelled widely around Greece itself. So here we have a bit of a background on the man Herodotus. It isn't comprehensive by any means. Herodotus himself was not interested in talking about himself, but rather the places and people he visited, their traditions and the stories they reported to him. And again, at the beginning of his work, he states his intended goal. So that human events do not fade with time, May the great and wonderful deeds, some brought forth by Hellenes, others by the barbarian, not go unsung, as well as the causes that led them to make war on each other. So, what does Herodotus cover in his histories? As I pointed out earlier, we need to keep in mind, although Herodotus is credited with one of the first works of history, this is quite different to what we would expect of a history of today. Back in Herodotus' times, clear disciplines and knowledge-based pursuits were not clearly defined as they are today. So trying to view his work as simply a history, by our modern definitions, is to overlook many other elements within the histories. At the core of his work, he was trying to understand what led to the Greeks and barbarians, the Persians in this case, to make war on each other, and to recognise the achievements by both. His use of the word barbarian wasn't a derogatory term, as it would be seen today to represent, but basically referred to non-Greeks. As you may remember from earlier in the series, it grew out of the fact that Greeks would refer to people they couldn't understand as saying bah, 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 in much the same way we use the term blah, blah, blah. This would see that the Greeks refer to people who could not speak Greek as barbarous. Anyway, to highlight these two main themes in his work, he would focus on the Greek and Persian wars that would encompass the generation coming before him, covering the period from around 500 BC to 479 BC. So far in the series, the majority of the episodes have covered the period Herodotus deals with. Plus, we made use of his work as he delved into the backgrounds of the Spartans, Athenians and Persians. Even into his own time, when he would write his histories, the experiences of the Persian Wars were still having great impact politically and diplomatically throughout Greece, especially in Athens. Throughout this account, though, we would see other elements as part of his work, which today would be recognised as geography, anthropology, ethnography, zoology, 
as well as fables and folklore. Many of these elements would come up as digressions from his main narrative within the histories. As Herodotus moved through his account, he would often move away from the narrative to give background on a particular place or person as they were brought up. We see many of these other forms within the histories occurring when he was working to fulfil his goal of recounting the many and great deeds brought forward by barbarians. The Greek viewpoint would form the normal view of the world in his work. So as he encountered places and people who appeared different from his point of view, he would spend more time focused on the task describing what the Greek audience would find fascinating. We have two very notable examples of this occurring. Firstly, he would spend an entire book on the subject of Egypt. This digression would come out of his account of Cambyses' campaign against Egypt after succeeding Cyrus the Great of Persia. Herodotus would move through many aspects around Egypt, from the description of the Nile, their customs of society, religion, and description of animals local to the area. The Greek fascination with Egypt was far older than Herodotus, with its wealth, monuments, geography, and age of its civilization compared to the Greeks all contributing to this. His second longest digression would concern the region of Scythia. To the Greeks, they were on the fringes of the known world. Again, we see Herodotus describing their lands, people, practices and tales associated with them. Herodotus' description of them would represent them in complete contrast to what was considered normal behaviour and practices in the Greek world. So, an account of an almost alien people to the ordinary Greek, as well as their seemingly bizarre ways, would have intrigued a Greek audience. What Herodotus would produce was what seemed to be an original take on a number of different methods for recounting knowledge. There would be a clear focus on giving an account of the Greek and Persian wars, but woven in, we would see these many other elements to help highlight his desire in not letting deeds go unsung, and his search for reasons behind hostilities between East and West. In our times, the entire account is presented over nine books, but in his time, they were recorded on scrolls each scroll representing one book. It is clear his work was intended for a Greek audience. It had been recorded in Greek, and the Greek world is presented as the norm when comparing foreign lands. While he also carries on the theme of recording great deeds and the conflicts of East versus West found in epic poetry popular to the Greek, such as Homer's Iliad, what was different this time and novel though, he wasn't applying this to a distant past based off stories that had been told down through the ages from an oral tradition. He was applying the same themes to people and events that could be remembered by those living and close enough to give a first-hand account in some cases. So with this basic understanding of what Herodotus was trying to present, let's now have a brief survey of the structural outline of his nine books of the histories. With book one of the histories, we see Herodotus giving his goal in producing his work, before then beginning work on one of his core goals, the causes that led them to make war on each other, that being the Hellenes and the Barbarians. He looks at the mythic past and the conflicts that exist, but also acknowledges that these are but myths when he says, I myself have no intention of affirming that these events occurred thus or otherwise. He then transitions to talking about where he believes inquiring would be more helpful in realising his aim. This sees him turn to describe the history of the Lydian Empire and focusing on its last king, Croesus. This he follows through up to Persia's victory over the Lydian Empire and its incorporation into the Persian Empire. During the account of Lydia, we also see Herodotus take the opportunity to digress as he talks of Croesus looking for his allies from Greece. 
He gives us the early background on the Athenians in relation to their rule by Pisistratus, and then turns to the situation of events taking place in Sparta at this time. He then returns to the Lydians' defeat, which then sees the narrative move into the life of the founder of the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great. This not only gives us the story of the rise to power of Cyrus, but also the account of how Persia would become the dominant power in the Near East. We hear about the history of the Medes who were in power, then we see how Cyrus and Persia would turn the tables on this power dynamic. The Greek world's first encounters with the Persians are then described with delegations sent from mainland Greece and Persia's incorporation of their own in cities into the empire. The book then closes out with Cyrus's campaigns of expanding his empire through Anatolia, Mesopotamia and into Scythian lands, where he would end up being killed. Book 2 then picks up from the death of Cyrus the Great and the succession of Cambyses to the Persian throne. More plans for expanding the empire are then described, originally planned by Cyrus as preparations are made to campaign in Egypt. With the mention of Egypt, we now see a digression lasting for the rest of Book 2, which will go into many aspects. To the Greeks, the Egyptians were a fascinating culture as their civilization was so ancient. Herodotus then here has on display the many areas he would write about showing that he was not only writing history, but goes into depth covering geographical aspects of the land and their agriculture. He also spends a fair bit of time on the Nile, such as its sources and why it floods. Then we are given a description of Egyptian religion, customs, and descriptions of various animals found in Egypt. Herodotus then spends a great deal of time, nearly half the book, looking at Egyptian history from its earliest times up to just before Cambyses' invasion. Book 3 sees us back on track with a narrative, describing Cambyses' reign and conquest of Egypt, with descriptions of Ethiopia also entering the account, as Cambyses plans to campaign in other areas of Africa. In the account of Cambyses, we also see his downfall in progress, and what would end up leading to a crisis in the Persian Empire. Before Herodotus continues with the events in the Persian Empire, he turns to Sparta, and a war that would rage against Samos, around the same time events were unfolding in Egypt. Here he also takes the opportunity to describe the buildings constructed on Samos and their engineering feats. We then get back into events in Persia and what would be known as the revolt of the Magi, the Persian priestly caste, with the death of Cambyses. This also gives us the rise of power of the next Persian king, Darius, who would be part of the conspiracy that would see this crisis averted. With Darius's accession to the throne, we get some interesting discussion about the best forms of government inserted into the mouths of Darius and the conspirators by Herodotus. With Darius now on the throne, we see how he brought order back to the empire, and Herodotus gives us a survey of the various satraps that made up Persian lands. With Book 4, we see a similar course taken as with Book 2, which focused on Egypt. We hear of Darius launching an attack on Scythia, the same region Cyrus was killed in. This then sees Herodotus head off on another long digression, where he engages in much of the folklore around the Scythians and their religious practices. He is also interested in the geography of the lands and pays special interest to the rivers in the area. The customs of the people were also highlighted and would have been a fascination to the Greeks, with the people on the edges of their known world and such contrary behaviours. We then hear of Darius's campaign being launched, where Herodotus continues with the details on the geography they faced with a widened focus on all the various tribes and groups that made up Scythia. We are then taken back to the campaigns, where a particular focus is placed on the Greeks that assisted the Persians by guarding a bridge crucial to the Persians' line of communication. 
Protus then moves on to the closing of Book 4 by looking at Libya, their geography and the campaign the Persians would conduct. Here we see a particular focus placed on the city of Cyrene, originally started as a Greek colony. The city and the regions around are then added to the Persian Empire. Book 5 opens up with more expansionist moves made by the Persian Empire under Darius. This time, attention is focused on the lands north of Greece, Thrace and Macedonia. We also get some preliminary information about Miletus and its tyrant, which then helps set up the main subject of the book, the Ionian Revolt. This is where we now see one of the main events that would be seen by Herodotus as being the reason for war between the Greeks and Persians. Herodotus now opens up the narrative on the events that would be the main focus of his histories, the Greek and Persian wars. The Ionian Revolt is the beginning of this period and Herodotus now looks at the events behind the revolt breaking out. With the narrative moving to the Ionians seeking help from mainland Greece, we now get some more background to both Athens and Sparta's recent history. Once Herodotus brings us back up to speed on the goings-on with the city-states of the mainland, he brings us back to the breakout of the revolt. The opening campaign of the revolt that Athens would be involved in is then described all the way down to its failure. Then further operations of the revolt are continued with and the Persians' reactions to bring the book to a close. With Book 6, we see Herodotus continue the narrative of the Ionian Revolt, though with it in its closing stages. The major battle that would effectively see the defeat on the revolt is being played out, and then the Persians mopping up operations, bringing control back in Anatolia. We are then told about the figure of Miltiades in the Chersonese to help set up the narrative for the last half of the book, as well as hearing about the initial campaign of the first Persian invasion that went through this area, as well as into Thrace and Macedon. Though before getting there, we are taken back to Sparta, where Herodotus tells us about the Spartan kingship and some current interactions within Greece. This then brings us to the Marathon Campaign and the opening of operations against the Greek mainland. Miltiades is presented as the hero of the campaign, but we then hear about his fall from favour after the battle and his death to close out the book. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Do you feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Myself, as a father of three, I am really liking the look of the many options under the family-friendly category. Go to the link in the show notes to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. Have you been enjoying the series and want to show your support in some way? You can visit www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the Support the Series button. Here you will find many ways you can help the series grow, from subscribing, getting involved in social media, and leaving reviews where you listen to your podcasts. Other options also include assisting with my Amazon wishlist for resources and supporting the series on Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee. The support I have been receiving so far has been fantastic. So a big thank you to everyone who has been helping me grow the series. Book 7 sees us continue with the narrative of the Greek-Persian Wars, though with us back in Persia, where a renewed campaign is being arranged. Troubles in the Empire see the campaign delayed, as well as the death of Darius. The new king Xerxes comes to the throne, and after the troubles in the empire are dealt with, 
Arrangements now continue for the second invasion of Greece. We are then given a description of the size and scale of the invasion, with the engineering feats constructed, as well as the vast resources Xerxes had to call on. Herodotus then continues with the advance of the Persian army to the Hellespont, where we are then also given a detailed description of the various peoples that made up the forces. Herodotus then takes us to Greece, where the city-states who would defend Greece come together to form a league. Here they would make preparations to make ready for the Persian advance into their lands. With the preparations covered, we now get to the Persian manoeuvres towards Artemisium on the sea and Thermopylae on land. The book then concludes with the Battle of Thermopylae and the death of Leonidas. With the Battle of Thermopylae fought and lost by the Greeks, Herodotus in Book 8 turns to the events in the lead-up to Artemisium. This then heads into the narrative of the three days of fighting during the Battle of Artemisium before the Greeks then withdraw from their position. Persian activities are then described after the battles before an account of the Persian advance through central Greece and on to Athens. We also hear of the evacuation of Athens to Salamis, where the Greek fleet is also now stationed. Herodotus highlights the tenuous nature of the Hellenic League with disagreements on how they should proceed. This then takes us to the naval battle of Salamis and all the action that that entails. With the Persian defeat at Salamis, Herodotus then moves on to the discussions and decisions being made in the Persian camp, which would see Xerxes leave back to the empire, though the Persians would remain with a picked force under the command of Mardonius. This then takes us into events as winter would come on, seeing a close of the campaigning season. Mardonius during this time would also turn to diplomacy to attempt to break up the unity of the Greek force. We now get to the last book of the histories and the climax of the Greek and Persian wars. Herodotus begins with the Persian reoccupation of Athens, with then diplomatic talks taking place between Athens and Sparta to try and confront the Persians once again. During these talks, Herodotus abruptly transitions from a sense of uncertainty to the Greeks being on a war footing once again. We are now taken to the manoeuvres of both sides as they would end up facing one another in Boeotia between the polis of Plataea and Thebes. Ten days of skirmishing and probing are then described before getting to the main action of the Battle of Plataea. Once the battle is won, Herodotus talks about the direct aftermath before then turning to another battle fought on the same day, at Macale. He now moves back in the timeline to bring us back up to speed on the developments within the Greek fleet. Once we are caught up, the final major battle of the Greco-Persian Wars is described. With the victories of 479 BC, Herodotus now begins to wrap up his histories by talking about the following on operations in the Aegean and the Hellespont, which would open up a whole new story. But it will be Thucydides that will take up the narrative from here. Herodotus ends his histories back in Persia. After having described some intrigue back in the Persian court, he then turns back to Cyrus the Great and the advice he gives when having established his empire. Soft places tend to produce soft men. So, that's a very brief outline of what you'd expect to find in Herodotus' histories. Though, when you read it for yourself, you'll discover there is a lot of depth there. Let's now turn to how he went about collecting and putting together the topics found throughout these nine books of his histories. Today, when collecting information, we have many avenues open to us for piecing together historical narrative. We created institutions that collect various forms of knowledge in a central point to be accessed by the public with libraries existing in just about every city and town. Our tradition of the library is often looked back to the creation of the Library of Alexandria, founded in the 3rd century BC, not to mention the institution of schools and universities 
that have formalized the use of information and its recording. From here, we have access to a preponderance of sources that have been researched and written by authors from all around the world and going back some 2,500 years. In our computer age, this access to information has reached new heights, with it being cheaper and faster to access all sorts of knowledge without even having to leave our homes. We can search and write on a topic, being able to present a generally factual account without even having to have visited places or talked to people linked to it. The 2,500 years that history has developed over has provided us a reliable guide on how to ensure we recognise, collect and use credible information. In ancient times, things were quite different. We have already touched on the fact that the writing of an inquiry into the past or history was a relative new way of recording knowledge. Due to this, no formalised method had been developed to constitute what was acceptable and credible beyond the writer's own judgement. In Herodotus' days, the level of literacy would have been very low when compared to today, with mostly only citizens of a polis and predominantly only the upper class educated in the use of letters and numbers. Given this, the access and ability to refer to written sources that we take for granted today would have been a luxury in Herodotus' times. Even if you were lucky enough to have been educated, your access to knowledge on a particular topic would have been very limited. Because of this level of literacy and access to written records, the past had been transmitted to the succeeding generations orally. These stories we now see as mythology, which recorded great events and the exploits of individuals in the distant past. Since these tales were not written down but passed on orally, they would need to remain memorable and ensure that they would survive the passage of time. With each generation, details within the stories would evolve, making them more relevant to the new audience. Therefore, remaining memorable, though at the heart would be a remembered past to a time long ago. This then brings us to Herodotus and the sources he would use to present his histories. He was living in a period that was on the cusp of a shift in understanding of how the past was remembered and how information was presented. He would make use of the traditions of myth and folklore from many cultures but he was also using other methods to collect his information. In Herodotus' time, a new method for recording knowledge had begun to take shape, which he would be able to have access to. Writers were now starting to use what was known as prose to record information rather than verse, which had been used to chronicle the times of the mythic past. This relatively new shift was an effort in attempting to understand the cosmos and the world around them in more direct terms. It isn't thought that what had come earlier was anything like what Herodotus would produce, but he may well have built upon the methods and even used some as source materials for his research. Most of these early prose writers' works only survive in fragments, or we are only aware of them due to references from later writers. They also seem to have first emerged in the Greek cities of Asia Minor, or the nearby islands. This we saw earlier in the series was where the intellectual revolution seems to have begun as the Dark Ages disappeared and the Archaic Age advanced on. It must also be noted that it isn't entirely clear when some of these early writers lived, with some possibly coming after Herodotus. Though one such early writer that we are almost certain influenced Herodotus was that of Hecataeus of Miletus. Hecataeus is thought to have been born around 560 BC and a part of the nobility within Miletus. Not much else is known about his life, but he would produce works looking at the customs of people around the Mediterranean and would look into the various hero genealogies in an attempt to bring order to them. We know Herodotus is well aware of him as he makes reference to him during his histories. 
He would also have Hecateus step forward on the eve of the Ionian Revolt to warn against taking this action against Persia. When Herodotus delves into the customs of various peoples, it is thought he was drawing on the example set by Hecateus when surveying various peoples, and may have even drawn upon his writings. As I have said, there are also a few other writers we are aware of who produced works of prose, but we can't be certain of when they were writing. Also, we really only have who they were and the titles of works without knowing much else about what was within the works. But these could perhaps give us an indication of what sort of Greek sources Herodotus may have had access to. These writers would include Dionysus of Miletus, who wrote Persian Matters, Xanthus of Lydia, who wrote Lydian Matters, Charon of Lampsacus, who wrote the works of Ethiopia, Persia, and the founding of various cities. Lastly, we have Hellenaceus of Lesbos, who wrote a number of works with such subjects, focusing on the local history of Athens, customs of the barbarians, the Lydians, the Egyptians, and Persians. But again, we have no indication of how much Herodotus drew on these accounts, if at all. Though, we can see people were active in trying to understand the world around them, and a number of topics Herodotus would cover may well have been written about before he embarked on his life's work. So far, we have looked at the written sources in the form of prose, but there was also a very strong poetic tradition in Greece, and what had been the dominant method for passing down information, or at least the ideas and sentiments of the past events. Herodotus may well have drawn upon these to help gather information on actual events, or the feeling society held towards the events. When it comes to the main subject of his work, the Greek and Persian Wars, we have a few examples that were in existence before his writing of the histories. Aeschylus we have met before, as he was a playwright and wrote the play Persians in 472 BC, which told of events during the Battle of Salamis, though through the Persian eyes. The setting of the play is at the Persian court where a messenger travels back from Greece giving an account of the battle. Phrynichus was also an ancient playwright who had written a work titled Fall of Miletus, which was in reference to the recapture of the city ending the Ionian Revolt. In his works, Herodotus directly makes reference to this play. He says, When Phrynichus produced his play, The Capture of Miletus, the audience in the theatre burst into tears. The author was fined a thousand drachma for reminding them of their own evils, and they forbade anyone ever to put the play on stage again. The last possible poetic source I will mention that Herodotus may have called on was that of Simonides, who was credited with a number of epitaphs after the Greco-Persian Wars. He also wrote some longer works that focused on the battles of Salamis, Artemisium, and Plataea. But like I've said, we have very little idea of how much he drew upon these poets and playwrights. But from his own writings, we know he was well aware of them and their works since he does talk about them. Though his mentioning of them seems to be more around their own lives and what they were doing, rather than what they presented within their works. So we have covered some of the written sources Herodotus would have had access to when compiling his research. We will look at another source when I get to a specific example when it came to Egypt. But let's now turn to a method Herodotus seems to have preferred using, and one that would yield a number of fantastic stories. This was drawing on his own experiences, such as observations he made, and inquiries he conducted. Then he would usually give us his opinions or judgments on what he had reported. Obviously, he would have used a different method of doing this depending on what he was dealing with at the time. He would not be able to witness for himself past events. 
who would give first-hand accounts of what he saw when it came to geography, buildings, monuments, and customs of places he had visited. Though when looking at past events, he would rely on speaking with people who had possibly witnessed them, or perhaps who the story be passed on to. It's also likely the customs of people may have to some degree fallen under this method also. It's also clear he made attempts to speak with multiple people or authorities on a particular subject, as we do find him presenting multiple accounts on an event or a figure, such as when he describes the outcome of Ephialtes after the Battle of Thermopylae. On the one hand, Herodotus also tells us he heard multiple accounts, but decides to tell us the one he found most believable, such as the rise of the Persian Empire and the early history of its founder, Cyrus the Great. Not only would Herodotus give us his version of events, but we also see him reporting what information is said by certain people or authorities, almost as if he is allowing a particular place or people putting their own arguments forward on a topic. For example, we often see him saying the Persians report or the Egyptians report. To finish up, I want to turn to an example where we can see all of these methods at work, plus some overlap from some of them. One place Herodotus travelled to and spent time at was that of Egypt. He devotes a large portion of his histories to Egypt, with it encompassing all of Book 2. From his writing it appears he was very much enamoured with the lands around the Nile and its people, though he would have been well aware that the Greeks who he was writing for had a huge fascination with this ancient culture also. When in Egypt, we can see from his works that a range of methods were used to gather information on the various subjects he would report on. When it came to the geography and the matters of the Nile, he had used his own observations and perhaps some other accounts. His description of the flow of the Nile is not accurate and seems to be born out of his own judgment rather than that of the Egyptians themselves. As one would think they would have been well aware of the characteristics of the Nile since their civilization was born out of it and their prosperity depended on knowing it intimately. There is also the strange example when commenting on the animals of Egypt, where it looks as though he had not seen an animal for himself, but rather had made a description based off of the Greek name for it, as well as some vague descriptions he may have heard. This example is on the hippopotamus, which basically translates to river horse. Herodotus describes it as such. It has four feet with cloven hooves like an ox, a blunt snout, a mane like a horse, conspicuous tusks, and a horse's tail. It neighs, it is the size of a largest ox, and its hide is so thick that once it is dried, spear shafts are crafted from it. With other examples, it is clear he is reporting from his inquiries, as he was also describing animals that he wouldn't have been able to see for himself, as they were mythical, such as the phoenix and the flying snakes though he does tell us pretty much everything to do with the geography, customs and animals he reports has been a result of his own observations, judgments and research. What research is meant to mean, we aren't too sure, but I feel there was inquiring within the Egyptians themselves involved. It's also likely that he used both his own observations and inquiries within the Egyptian authorities when it came to Egyptian customs. He would have seen for himself how these unfolded, Though this would have only been a snapshot of his visit and would have been lacking much context. Though his inquiries would have revealed perhaps a deeper understanding. Though with what is reported, he seems to mix both of these methods of source gathering to arrive at what would be told in the histories. Some elements, he seems to have noticed similarities to the Greeks and assume this to be the origin of certain aspects of the Greek culture, such as religion and the pantheon of gods. Other aspects he reports as being completely back to front compared to the normal Greek way, 
These, I think, is us seeing his own observations at work. Observing the society and culture without having an understanding of the context, he only gets a superficial glimpse during his time there. As for the authorities he inquired with when in Egypt, he makes it clear that this was the priestly class. We will look at aspects around this when it comes to looking at his reliability in our next episode, but for now, we can see two methods for gathering his information in respects to inquiring with them. This takes part in the last half of Book 2, where he reports the history of Egypt. He tells us he is going to report the words of the Egyptians as he heard them. He will also add some of his own observations too. We are aware that the Egyptians kept records on papyrus as well as monuments, which were referred to when giving Herodotus information on their early histories. So here we can see a written record at play, but Herodotus having to inquire into them through the Egyptian priests. We have no evidence that he knew any other language other than Greek, so an interpreter would have been needed to make use of the written records. Herodotus left to accept what he was told to be a genuine account of what they said. Anyway, I didn't want to get too deep into the Egyptian account just yet, as next episode we'll be exploring it some more when looking at questions behind Herodotus' reliability and criticisms laid at him. Here I wanted mostly to highlight what types of methods and sources he had access to when collecting his information. Now that we have a basic understanding of who Herodotus was, what his aims were in compiling his histories, the topics and areas of his histories would cover, and how he set about collecting his sources, we'll move on looking at some themes around his work next episode. Like I said, I want to look at areas that question him as being a reliable historian, and the popular notion that flips the father of history title on its head, the father of lies. I'm also going to look at one of the fiercest works of criticism against him in The Malice of Herodotus. But I think ultimately I'm going to show how Herodotus still remains extremely important to us today and our development of history. He was doing something quite different for his times, even though there were writers who had written on areas we could class as geography or ethnography Herodotus seems to be the first to have woven all these elements, as well as myth and folklore, into an inquiry of the past, with the aim of understanding it. Thank you everyone for your continued support, and a big shout out to all those who have found some value in the series and have been supporting it on Patreon, and other various ways. Your contribution is truly helping me grow the series. I would like to also give a shout out to our newest Strategos members over on Patreon. So a huge thank you to George Owen, to Alex Paulus, and John Bowman for finding value in the series and what I'm doing. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button, where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over at the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. I hope you can join me next time for episode 37, Herodotus, the Father of Lies.